This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. This episode is for you climbers out there who are in your 40s, 50s, or indeed even 60s, and are hoping to climb as well as you can, perhaps do some training, or maybe just stay in the sport as long as possible and get the most out of your time and days outside. Now we have on the show today, Eric Hurst, who is one of the original founding fathers of modern training theory for climbing and just a total legend in general, really. And what he doesn't know about training, I guess many people don't. And he also comes from an amazing perspective of having climbed for almost all of his life through from his teenage years up to now being 59 years old. So it's really exciting for me in this episode to sit down with him and look through his journey, especially over the last 20 years of those 40s and 50s and now heading into his 60s. And some of my own perspective as well of being in my 40s and seeing some changes in how my approaches to climbing, training, performance, etc., have changed. And of course, some of the work that I've done with clients with Lattice over the years. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's one that I know many of you have asked us to do more of and sit back, grab a cup of tea and let's get stuck in. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show again. Nice to have you back. Hey, Tom, it's great to be here and uh, psyched to talk about some training, climbing, everything under the sun when it comes to, I guess, what us guys getting older or everybody getting older, men and women, uh, you know, how we deal with that as climbers. And uh, so, yeah, let's get rolling. Okay. So first question has to be, how old are you? Cause I'm 43. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you're a young man, Tom. So um, <laughs> I am uh 59 and almost a half. I, I turned 60 in February, which blows my mind because, you know, when I look in the mirror, I don't see a 60 year old, uh, you know, I am wired, uh, you know, my, just the way I think when I wake up in the morning and hit the ground, I still in my mind, uh, I'm operating as if I'm a 30 something, let's say, uh, but yet I get the constant reminders from my body that I, I'm not in my thirties. And so you need to adapt and adjust and, uh, I've spent a lot of time, probably beginning when I was where you're at in your 40s, I started thinking about these topics of the aging athlete and, you know, what countermeasures uh, need to be taken. And, uh, you know, I've gone down a lot of rabbit holes, some of them useful, some of them a waste of time when it comes to trying to, you know, stay active and uh, performing at a high level physically, mentally, uh, you know, into my 40s, 50s, and soon 60s. And uh, it, it can be done. Obviously, there's evidence out there, not just folks like you and me, but, you know, climbers in their 60s who climb at a super high level. There's not a lot of them because you can get shut down for various reasons. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot to talk about, no doubt about it. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things which I think is amazing about you, Eric, is that lots of people really hold you up as this amazing symbol of someone who has been climbing for almost all their life and has performed really well all the way through that that window that era can you give us a bit of a i suppose a whistle stop tour of what did your climbing evolution look like during those decades just so people can get an, a yeah. sense of where you're operating in each period and were you 
always, you know, how much were you climbing? What kind of grades were you climbing at? Um, a little bit of perspective on that for people during that period. You bet. So uh, I've been climbing, uh, this is my 47th year. So I started when I was uh, 13. Uh, so this is back in the 70s. There were no bolts and cams, at least no sport climbing. There was little quarter inch aid bolts in Yosemite. Uh, but um, yeah, so I grew up in a trad climbing world. And so in, in that era, in the 70s, if you climbed 510, you were pretty badass. And so I, I did. I climbed 510 by the time I was 15 and I climbed 510. 12 on trad gear by the time I was 17. You know, again, this is back uh, in, you know, well, the early 1980s when I broke into 512, which back then with terrible shoes and not so good trad gear, uh, 512 was pretty badass. Uh, and, um, you know, today, you know, uh, it's attainable by a beginner in, you know, a year or less, uh, perhaps. But, uh, uh, so, uh, and then I was kind of uh, an early adopter of sport climbing. Uh, in the mid 80s, uh, here in the States, we observed what was going on in Europe. And I was one of the first people to s start bolting routes in the Eastern United States. Uh, Alan Watts, probably the first and most prolific early bolter at Smith Rock in the early to mid 80s. And uh, so, you know, that kind of opened up higher level of performance where there was less gear issues. And my interest in training started in high school when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, I got into gymnastics and I ran cross country. Uh, you know, back then there was no training content. There was no lattice training or training for climbing uh, in, you know, 1982. So uh, the next best thing was to mimic what John Gill was doing. He was, of course, the legendary boulder, the father mm. of modern climbing and training for climbing, as I call it. And we all knew that John Gill did rings and gymnastics, uh, calisthenic type exercises. And so a few of us uh, of my generation, you know, Todd Skinner, Lynn Hill, Jim Collins, uh, there are a few others kind of just mimicked what Gil was doing. And that kind of got me started on this lifelong path of training for climbing and kind of similar to you, you know, uh, over the years, uh, you know, trying a lot of things, uh, you know, experiments of N equals one with ourselves, but also trying to tap into what others were doing. And uh, slowly as the climbing literature and training literature got better, let's say into the 2000s and beyond, uh, I think we all got better at training for climbing. We did a lot of stupid things back in the, in the old days that didn't really work. Uh, maybe they created a lot of fatigue, but didn't translate into uh, improving performance. So yeah, over those years, um, you know, I was climbing pretty hard. I was never uh, like a full-time pro climber. You know, I never, mm. you know, uh, lived on the road for years. Uh, and uh, I was always kind of uh, either in school or working a job. Uh, I started a family. I got married early and we started a family. And, uh, you know, so uh, I, I think a lot of listeners can relate to having a lot of stuff going on in their life while they try to climb at a high level. And that's was kind of me. Uh, and so I climbed my first 513 in 1987. I, I put up the first 513 at the New River Gorge uh, back in the early days of the New River Gorge. Uh, how, how old were you in 1987? Uh, so I would have been 23. Uh, 23. So 513 yeah. at 23. Yeah. Yeah. 513 at 23. And, um, you know, uh, again, that wasn't the top grade by any stretch. I mean, 14A was done at about that time. Um, uh, I think JB Tribu did the first 14A here in the States to Boulder not to be around 86 or 87. So, 
you know, I was well below that, but still it was the hardest drought at the New River Gorge. So that, that meant something. Um, and then, you know, over the years, kind of my goal has been to remain a 513 climber. I've never climbed 514. I never projected a route. I think I was, you know, I, I think I might still be capable perhaps if I really put down my rope bag and, you know, beat her out to submission, but that's never been my style. I've always been, I, I, I gain the most pleasure from climbing routes and that means doing on sites and, you know, quick red points. You know, I love second going routes. I, I find that to be a really fun process to unlock a route on the first go and then send it on the second go. I, I put a lot of emphasis into that type of climbing. You know, it's about climbing is about fun first and foremost. And for me, I get the most fun from, you know, topping routes, not hanging on them. Uh, and so uh, maybe if I'm to ever climb uh, AP plus, uh, I need to be willing to fail for a long time uh, in order to uh, tee it up for me. But, um, you know, that's not what, you know, grade of difficulty is not the main reason I climb. I, I mm. climb for the movement, the pleasure, the process, the people, the community. There's a lot of reasons I climb and difficulty is just one of them. And so I hope when I'm in my 70s or 80s, I'll still be climbing. Probably not 513 anymore, but... uh um, you know, uh, my goal is to to climb at that grade, 7C plus, as long as I can. Um, you know, I spent some time uh, a few months ago climbing with Alex Megos here in the States, and we had this same conversation. And I was saying I climbed my first, you know, uh, 513A in 1987. So I think it would be fun to climb 513 for 50 years. So I need to continue uh, this uh for, uh, for you know another i don't know what the what it would be uh, another uh i can't do the math in my head but i need to i need to go another five or ten years of climbing 513 and yeah it's and a big time yeah and so maybe i can pick up a uh a 14 along the way i who knows we'll see maybe, maybe okay. you can help me with that <laughs> a, a question that i have for you and is in which year so there's a few questions here, uh, so, so we can uh, get, get them all out. So which year do you consider that you had your peak physical shape? Which year did you climb your hardest grade? Mm. And which years did you have your peak technical and psychological shape? Yeah, that's a great, that, that's really a fun topic to discuss. Um, and I think it's very um, when I when I give you the answer, I think it surprises people, and I think it should also excite people. And so here's what the answer is: I think in terms of just raw strength and power, it was when I was in my 20s, probably my mid to upper 20s. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of literature that shows that that is where uh, you know peak strength and power tends to peak uh, in terms of powerlifting records, let's say, and things such as that. Uh, but the good news is uh, when when you can't necessarily get much more, you know, new benchmarks, strength and power, you're still able to uh, improve your endurance. And a lot of uh, elite endurance events, records are held by people in their 30s and even, you know, 40s in some cases. Um, and then when it comes to uh, technique and tactics in the mental game, uh, I think I'm still getting better which is really exciting. I've been climbing 47 years and I, I'm still improving. So even as my, uh, say, power and strength is beginning to wane, uh, 
you can compensate in other areas. And that's why I'm happy and proud to say that just this past April, I climbed perhaps my hardest route or one of my two or three hardest routes, uh, a 513C, which I've done a, a, a couple of uh, in recent years. Uh, but for me, that's a really hard grade because again, I'm not a projector. Uh, mm. I've never I've never worked a route for more than four or five days. I tend to get bored and move on. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, back in the 90s, I was climbing 13B. And, you know, here, 30 years later, I'm climbing at the same level or even a smidge harder. And it's not because I'm stronger. It's because of all the other stuff. I'm wiser. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a better climber technically. Uh, I'm certainly a more efficient climber. When you're young, you tend to waste a lot of energy because you can, uh, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, when you get older, you have to really, uh, you know, pull out all the stops and tactics and, uh, you know, uh, find ways to be more efficient and quicker and smarter. And, you know, and so that's what, um, you know, climbing I guess that climbing journey should be about. I think everybody, when they get into the climbing, uh, into climbing, whether they get in as a youngster or a young adult, you first want to get strong because, you know, you see all these strong climbers and, you know, now we have all this training information and training technology and system walls, all of which really are great tools and, you know, kind of egg you on to be seeking a higher level of power. Uh, and you perhaps early in those early years overlook, you know, the role of wisdom and master, you know, striving to become a master of a craft of climbing. And so me, 47 years in, I'm still not a master. I think that's a lifelong journey, uh, uh, you know, and so I I still discover new things and make little distinctions. And it's like, wow, you know, uh, I'm, you know old dog can still learn some new tricks along the way. And, and, you know, you also have to kind of pick your battles. You know, I mean, I, I will see sometimes routes that just are so inspiring, but I maybe get on them and test them out and say, that is a potentially injurious route for me, mm -hmm. Eric, go find a different route. Uh, and so you have to be a little smarter. Whereas again, a young climber, tends to be all, you know, just lean into it and go, uh, despite perhaps the risk of injury, you know, tweaky holds and such. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, there's, there's, there's a lot to it. I mean, it's a, such a complex puzzle, but I love that. I, I think you and I are similar in that way that we, we love the, kind of the science of climbing and, you know, this complex puzzle that we're never going to totally figure out, but we can keep trying. And, uh, and so that, keeps me engaged in this process and passionate about climbing and training for climbing, which I do a lot of for my age. Mm. Well, I think that's, um, that's a perfect segue into uh, what I kind of wanted to tackle the, the main topics today as, you know, both you and I are um, beyond what we would class as our sort of classic prime years, especially when it comes to strength and power, but we're both, very focused on climbing still and we we still want to perform at a high level ideally and like you I still want to move forward in my climbing some bits may be a little slower than others but you know like as you pointed out in terms of the psychology or tactics or technique there's 
you know, I feel still significant improvements that occur at quite a pace. Um, but if we look at the the physical elements that sort of sit on our, our recipe or our menu in terms of what goes into climbing and training, you mentioned their strength and power training. How do you view the older athlete as uh, needing to make adaptations in their approach for strength and power training as they cross that sort of threshold of 40s 50s yeah. and beyond right uh well you know i know some older athletes who like just cease all um advanced training techniques and tactics because they're too scared of of getting injured and that can be a very real thing uh, you know i know more than a few climbers older climbers who have torn biceps tendons and had injuries and it's not like that injury, that injury was many years in the making. Uh, and, uh, you know, our bodies do get more fragile and perhaps feel more fragile as they get older. And, uh, you know, I think our body as a protective mechanism is downregulating certain things as you get older, you know, our hormone levels are changing, you know, our connective tissues get stiffer, not in a good way, but in a bad way due to advanced glycation end products that just generally build up in older bodies that make, you know, you watch a 70 year old guy walk down the street. He doesn't walk the same way as a 30 year old does no. because, because of stiffness. I, I don't walk the same way as my sons do <laughs> because, you know, your body changes. There's just no way around it. Now we can take countermeasures and, and try to um, slow the process and, uh, uh, you know, still function at a high level. And so to, first of all, in terms of strength and power, uh, I've come to the conclusion, you know, at age 59, I am never going to break a new into a new level of strength and power. Uh, and honestly, you know, and I know we've had this conversation over the last few years about, you know, uh, 20 millimeter, you know, uh, finger force testing and kind of using body weight as a benchmark. Well, a very relatively high benchmark to be able to hold your body weight for say five seconds on the lattice 20 millimeter hold. Uh, and that's something I can still do on a really good day, but it's rare. Uh, you know, I need to be fully recovered coming out off of a deload maybe, and, uh, you know, warmed up perfectly and I can just, you know, maybe eke that out. Uh, but that's where I've been for five or 10 years now. Uh, and so my training mission is, to basically just try to stay where I'm at when it comes to maximum strength and power. Mm. Um, I can still do a one arm on a good day, though I honestly don't do much of that kind of thing because I am a little fearful of injury. It's like, you know, just certain things, you know, there's other ways to train the, that those muscle groups uh, and, uh, and do it more safely than just grabbing a bar and trying to puck into a one arm like we did when we were young, young men. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of where I have this this mental battle because I again I look in the mirror and I don't see an old man and I think I can grab the bar and do that um, and and I can but is it you know something I should be doing and so you know my training uh, I'm trying to keep strength and power uh, up to where it's been and just hopefully hang on as long as I can uh, but I think the physical gains for me have been more in the endurance front you know uh, in terms of you know. Uh, primarily aerobic endurance because, you know, mitochondria mass is something that you can maintain uh, into old age and your capillarity. I mean, as long as you're super active and, you know, you need a lot of capacity training to do that type of stuff, 
Uh, it's not that high-end brief maximal training, but kind of the other end of the spectrum, uh, kind of like a runner doing base training. Well, you know, me, I, I climb a lot sub-maximally as that base training. And then I have, you know, a few brief sessions a week that are more high power, uh, but they are brief, you know. So uh, when it comes to those max strength exercises or just a little bit of campus type training, um, a little bit of, you know, max bouldering, though I'm not a big boulderer. Uh, so, uh, you know, probably 80% of my training is submaximal and only 20% of it is, you know, that more high-end power oriented stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that also includes kind of power endurance training in that 20%. So, uh, you know, and so... So what I'm describing obviously is not a training program for boulderers uh, yeah. because I'm not, because I'm not a boulderer. Uh, I, I've that, that ship has kind of sailed. I, I dabble in it just enough for fun and to kind of keep some power, you know, full body power going. Uh, but I'm not out there projecting boulders. Not at all. That's, that's not me at this stage of my life. And uh, as a rock climber, you know, the capacity training with just maintenance strength and power training is a winning formula. Mm, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because um, uh, I mean, I, I certainly found for myself is that making improvements in uh, sort of, I suppose, benchmarks of strength or power are becoming increasingly hard now. I've, I've noticed it over the last, I'd say actually like last five years or so. Uh, so hit my late thirties only because I've, I've trained for so many years. I'm sort of acutely aware of That's what right. my body feels yes. like and how it responds to things. Um, but certainly what I've had to do in response to that, and, and likewise, I do this a lot with the people that we work who are in their 40s, 50s and 60s, is put much, much more priority and focus on the quality of the strength work so that it's it's known as being you cannot dodge this thing now. It may not be a really important part of what you're doing but it has to come in as priority, the thing that you focus on, the quality that you do at the beginning of sessions. And then secondly, and I don't know whether you do this, is that we try and take an approach of doing a bit more of the um, strength and conditioning work off the wall. So to work those prime movers involved with the strength element of climbing away from the climbing wall situation, just to reduce some of the injury risk and to be able to um, just create, I guess, more consistency and the ability for, be able to, for people to be able to maintain muscle mass in the areas that are sport specific. I, I don't know if you do the similar thing, Eric, or you do it all on the walls. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I definitely do, um, you know, uh, you call it base training, you know, uh, the things, the more um, near limit exercises, like for me, weighted pull-ups and weighted hangs, you know, those are just some fundamental ones. I, I do a little bit of free weight work, but not a lot. Uh, you know, I, again, just dabble in it to hit each body part and kind of get full recruitment, but I'm not seeking to put muscle mass on uh, at all. Uh, I'm seeking to maintain uh, kind of physically where I'm at. And, um, you know, I don't want to become a heavier climber, uh, you know, and most climbers don't want to become heavier. We're in a strength to weight ratio sport. But um, yeah, I, I do like that because those kind of, let's say those lifts or those exercises can be performed in a very controlled manner. Whereas when you get on a bouldering wall or a system wall um, and start doing limit problems, by its nature, you're more, you know, out of control. That's what is required, you know, just that try hard, 
just letting her rip, you know, um, and of course that's, especially for an older climber, you know, where injuries can happen. So it's, while it's rare that I'm on a, a route or even a training wall and pulling on monos, I do pull on monos on a hangboard, you know, as part of a warm up and a little bit as part of a uh, maximum training program for grip strength. So yes, so that I'm exposing myself to those kind of more difficult grips in a very controlled setting of, you know, of exercises. Um, and so I'm kind of prepared and hopefully more resistant when I encounter those types of positions on the wall, though I, if anything, tend to avoid things on the wall or at the crag that I perceive as injurious. Uh, and that's not something I, I kind of, I didn't go into that mode probably till I entered my fifties. So maybe you're not there yet, Tom, that you, that you need to call yourself off of a route or a boulder because it feels injurious. But at some point, I think you probably will view that as being a prudent tactic. Uh, you know, that uh, it's not often, but you know, occasionally I get on routes and I'm like, it's, I, I would love to do this, but I feel like I'm going to, it's putting my shoulder in a bad way that um, is it worth my season ending or worse yet, <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe something worse than that, you know? Uh, so kind of rule number one for the aging athlete is don't get injured. Everything else is below rule number one. Uh, and so I keep that in mind when I'm training, when I'm climbing, and also when I'm, you know, you know, considering what to eat and how much to rest. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I want to, before I forget, um, I don't want to discourage older climbers listening to this podcast in their forties and fifties from doing strength training. Uh, there is a lot of value, but me not getting any further gains out of it. And you kind of coming up against a bit of a ceiling, perhaps at, at your age, that is because we've been training for decades. Uh, and so somebody who has just gotten into climbing, say in the last few years, or maybe even the last decade, you know, maybe they got into climbing in their thirties or forties, or even found climbing late in life in their fifties. Those folks can get strength gains because they don't have the training history that you and I have, you know, we've already, you know, climbed the mountain, so to speak, you know, and so if we're standing on top of our personal Everest in terms of strength and power, you can't go any higher. And I think that's kind of where I am at. So I'm just trying to keep on top of uh, that physical Everest, let's say. But if somebody comes into climbing at age 35 or 45 or 55, they're starting from maybe not the bottom, but you know they've likely got a lot of mountain to climb in, in terms of strength gains and power. So I don't want to sound like I'm discouraging people from uh, engaging in a um, well-designed, and age-appropriate training program, uh, because many people can still make gains, but um, but folks like us who have been at it for so long, training in in, in you know very rigorous ways, um, it's you know you, you just can't get gains forever. That's not how it works. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, that's yeah, they're very two two very different scenarios there, and I and I think that's yeah. always one of the things that I try and point out a lot on this podcast or talking to others that every climber has really got to think about their essentially their history that goes into their situation you may have two climbers who are both 35 years old or both 45 years old uh, one climber has been climbing for 25 years already and is trying to climb their first 7a and the other person has been climbing for 
three years before and is trying to climb their first 7A. They're two very, very different approaches you take um, with those individuals training. And that's why training history is such an important part of the equation. I think a lot of people focus on the goal and, and the approach that takes them towards that goal and the methodology, but it has to be done in a reflective way of, but what's happened in the past, what's got you to this point, because everyone is a function of the work that they put in originally. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is so important. You know, we definitely see eye to eye there, Tom. And uh, you know, and it's not just the training history, but things like your injury history, your prior sports history, uh, you know, um, Obviously, genetics. I mean, a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but I mean, you know, genetics. Some people, you know, respond great to a, a lifting program or a fingerboard training program. And, you know, there's plenty of research on non responders. You know, the person that's not very fast twitch genetically won't respond to a, say, a max weight hangboard program the same way as somebody who is more fast twitch. But on the flip side, is that uh, person who's not very fast twitch. Uh, you know, their their uh, genetic predisposition is probably more in terms of the oxidative capacity and the potential to train up, you know, um, you know, slow twitch fibers to be ultra efficient and, uh, you know, have a higher climbing specific VO2. And, you know, they might be kind of physically designed or genetically predisposed to being more of an elite route climber than mm. an elite boulder. And there's actually some research on that. I did a podcast a few months ago that got a bit into the genetics of climbing. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating topic. I don't, I think it's probably not relevant to most people listening to this podcast, but to really reach, you know, the highest grades that you are capable of, that is actually some valuable information to know a bit about your genetics and, um, but again, climbing is such a complex game that genetics aside, you know, you still have the technical game and the mental game and, you know, recovery and all these other things that have very little to do with genetics. Uh, and so um, I am one to point out that I think, you know, you know, the average climber can probably climb harder than they think they can and probably should not be using genetics as an excuse. But mm. if we start talking about who is winning gold medals uh, in an event or who is putting up the hardest routes out there, then genetics certainly plays a role. It doesn't most sports. Yeah. Yeah. And, and talking of um, sort of uh, genetic makeup and slow twitch versus fast twitch, et cetera. And um, some of those improve those huge improvements that can still be made in the uh, fitness or endurance aspect of any particular climber. Can you talk me through a bit about how your, endurance training nowadays looks in your late 50s and then whether there's any differences between how you tackled endurance training in your 40s for example yeah well you know honestly in the first half of my climbing career i didn't do a lot of quote climbing endurance training other than going climbing and uh, you know I, i've always been a weekend warrior so uh you know back when i think back to when i was in my 20s and 30s and even 40s uh you know, I would go sport climbing or trad climbing on weekends. So I would be kind of more volume submaximal climbing because that's what route climbing is mostly. Uh, so then when I would be at home training, I would have a bouldering wall and a hangboard and a campus board. And so naturally my weekday training was a couple of days of more strength power or power endurance type training. And then my weekends of climbing on a rope 
was my endurance training. And, you know, of course, 30 years ago, what I was doing wasn't as well thought out or evidence-based as it is now. Uh, now, fast forward to the last 15 years, um, and, you know, I have a tread wall in my house. So now I have basically a cliff in my house that moves. Uh, and so I can train in more route-specific ways. And so that, uh, you know, of course, I spent the last 15 years experimenting and kind of, you know, uh, trying to find what is the best way to use a tread wall. Uh, because intuitively, you want to get on a tread wall and just climb and climb and climb until your, your forearms explode and you fall off. But that's not effective training. Uh, the, the effective way to use a tread wall is, as it turns out, interval training. And there's many different interval protocols. It's That's too much for us to get into today. But to answer your question, when I train at home now, uh, I do, you know, a, a couple days, two days a week where I am loading heavily. So that strength power type stuff, but those are like kind of a two, one hour to 90 minute workouts. And then all the rest of my training for the most part is uh, pretty much done on my tread wall. Now I have all, you know, these different programs that I've designed, uh, but I think the ones that are of the highest value to me are um, uh, intervals that are relatively brief, but high intensity. So I'm not talking about, um, uh, though I do some longer intervals where I'm climbing two to four minutes um, and repeating those two to four minute climbs until I've accumulated maybe a half an hour of total climbing. But that's more kind of the climber's equivalent of going out for a tempo run, like a moderate pace, you know, run that a, you know, a, a marathoner would do to accumulate miles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and so there is some value in that, of course, though I think for me where I'm at, there's not a lot of value other than just to maintain, you know, kind of my aerobic base. But I think what's helped me perform at my highest level are these brief high intensity intervals where, you know, in my last few years, what I've been using pretty extensively are these 30-30 intervals where I go, I get on the tread wall and climb 30 seconds all out. So I'm not concentrating on doing hard moves. The moves I'm doing might be, you know, V2 or V3 or V4 at the most, but I'm moving very briskly. There's no stopping and resting and chalking. Um, I don't want to say it's a sprint because it's not, but I'm constantly moving and working hard for 30 seconds. And then when the timer goes off, I'm off the wall for 30 seconds. And then after a 30 second rest, I'm back on the wall. And I do that six times. So um, on the first 30 second interval, when I'm fresh, I could certainly continue climbing. I could probably fight for another 20 seconds, but I, I call myself off prior to failure. The goal is not to reach failure. It's actually to kind of avoid failure. So work at a high power output, but avoid failure. So it's a very distinct thing that you need to kind of be able to, over time, suss out that sweet spot for you. What holds it takes, you know, what speed to set the wall at. Um, and, you know, I've been doing it so long that I can just intuitively hit it on any given day. So I, I do six of those. And of course, by the fifth and sixth interval, you are all out fighting to just hang on to 30 seconds till the buzzer. 
So um, the beauty of that is uh, it is very aerobic. It, it You are uh, eliciting the aerobic energy system while you're climbing and during the 30 second rest intervals, your body's kicking into this high speed recovery mode where circulation through your climbing muscles is maximized. Uh, you're you know flushing metabolic byproducts. You're circulating lactate to other parts of your body to be utilized or to be converted back to glycogen in your liver. Uh, and so it, the, the beauty of it is that the recovery uh, intervals of 30 seconds are just as valuable as the time on the wall. You're actually you know, getting valuable training, uh, valuable training stimulus, both with the 30 seconds on the wall and the 30 seconds off the wall. Um, and, uh, so it is, you know, definitely anaerobic. You're calling your anaerobic system into play because you're working hard. You're getting pumped. You're by that sixth, you know, interval you're powering out. So clearly there's a lot of anaerobic fatigue, but there's also, you have fully elicited the aerobic energy system as you climb and as you recover. So for uh, a route climber, uh, you know, I think the stimulus you get from that is is spectacular. And there'll be some value for boulders as well, though maybe people who specialize in longer boulders. If all you do is five move system wall routes, then this type of training wouldn't be so valuable perhaps. But longer boulders that take a minute or two or sport climbs that have, you know, hard cruxes um, are quite similar to this type of thing. So I do a set of six of those which takes six minutes because you're 30 off, 30 off with each interval. Um, then I rest 15 minutes and I do it again. And I, I, in a typical workout, will do four or even five blocks like that. Um, so it takes, you know, an hour and a half with those, you know, 15 minute rests in between. And that's the protocol that I found most effective. And I've uh, over the last five years, given it to quite a few pro climbers who have, you know, several of them, 515 climbers that have found it was uh, it offers them a training stimulus that they haven't been getting in what they were doing. You know, it, it, they were kind of not having something that was quite like what I was giving them with this 30, 30, 30 interval protocol. Mm. Um, and so you can't do this every day. Obviously, I would do this twice a week, uh, just as I do my max loading and power twice a week. Um, and then I, I do a, a fair amount of that kind of base training, which is right at or just below the kind of the threshold, uh, which is you know, kind of the more boring type of training. But again, uh, you, you know, mitochondria are responsive to, um, and, and for that matter, to maintain capillarity or increase capillarity, you like, you just, there's no way around needing to do a fair amount of that base training. Yeah, uh, and just so, want to, uh, I just want to point out just for anyone who's listening when um Eric's just talking about capillarity what um he's talking about here is the uh, the blood supply network um through the muscles which is delivering that oxygenated blood um and often you often see it referred to as capillary density as well right. um and one of the kind of important factors when you talk about improving that factor within um any particular muscle group in the body is it's essentially um results are delivered through time on tasks so the amount of volume that you're doing but importantly it has to be really quite low intensity 
um, for you to be able to have the uh, the best improvements from this um, because the sort of the 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 effect which is occurring is that when you get this shear force down the side of the capillaries through then you're creating this effect of angiogenesis, which is that uh, creation or uh, increase in cap- capillarity in the muscles. So sorry, just a little side note there for yeah. um, Eric, um, just in case anyone wasn't yeah. aware what yeah. it was. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, and, you know, so the, um, the, the stimulus for the body, um, there's just no way around it. You need to do a, a good deal of volume. I mean, there's a reason that elite distance runners from from the from the 1500 meter on up do a lot of miles uh yeah. it's just it's it's and it's and there's also heart you know there's a lot of benefit to developing a stronger you know athlete heart that has a higher stroke volume so i mean there's cardiovascular benefits to doing more aerobic oriented training uh but w- with regard to the climbing you know you you need to do a lot of mileage and the best route climbers obviously climb a lot you know i mean someone like an adam andra does a lot of mileage, whether it's in the gym or at the crag. I mean, they do a massive amount of uh, mileage. And of course, that has to always be appropriate to what your training history is. And, you know, we, you know, wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to copy what Andre does mileage wise, nor strength training wise, because it's apples and oranges. But compared to what you were doing previously, you know, there is some, some value, especially for route climbers. And, um, uh, you know, uh, and there's good evidence basis uh, for the listeners. I mean, Tom and I aren't just giving our opinion here. I mean, Simon Fryer, the, who you may know, the UK researcher, mm-hmm. did the, the the forum oxygenation studies a number of years ago, and he found that elite rock climbers um, could reoxygenate their finger flexors faster than uh, non-elite rock climbers. So, I mean, you know, and there's been you know needle biopsies done to more aerobically trained athletes that show that the capillary density you know, the space between or the distance from the capillary to the contractile fibers is smaller. And the, the shorter that distance, the, the quicker you can offload oxygen and CO2 both ways. Uh, and, you know, um, so those elite route climbers, yeah, they tend to be really strong because that's part of the formula, but they also uh, tend to be have a very high climbing specific VO2, um, not VO2 as measured on a treadmill, but VO2 that uh, is um, um, a measure of oxygen that can be consumed in the climbing muscles, you know? And so that's not something we can test super effectively for yet, but I think we're only a few years away from having some uh, ways to, uh, in the lab, uh, be able to yeah but we're going down a rabbit hole now i know there's always plenty of research there um so i I want to just touch a little bit just on um work rest uh ratios in terms of kind of the mesocycles and and stacking those working weeks versus rest weeks before i just want to finish up on some stuff um around nutrition because obviously that's a real area of expertise for Mm -hmm. you and i i'm uh nowhere near as well informed as were you so definitely want to make sure that i kind of um tackle that topic but um just before we kind of move on to that is we we do a lot of i suppose there's a a significant shift with the way that we put load onto an athlete in their 40s 50s 60s versus what they'll do in their 20s and 30s in that we will typically in a very basic sense generally run people on a three to one work rest week cycle in terms of mesocycle. So three hard weeks of training, typically one week of deload in that period. And that's the sort of the baseline where we'll start 
and then adapt a program. When it comes to the athletes in their 40s, especially 50s and 60s, we will typically run more on a two to one work rest ratio. So taking a more conservative approach to this, the quality of work is still really high, really good, but that the the frequency of the resting is much higher. Have you experienced the same thing with your climbing as you've gone through those decades as well? Or has this not been an effect because you've been training so many years? Uh, no, I, I, I think what you described pretty much fits my reality or my assessment of things. Uh, I mean, older athletes do need more rest or let's put it this way. They need more rest between those high intensity sessions or those all out sessions or those like real performance oriented sessions. I still think you can do a lot of that other type of activity that is more submaximal, uh, whether it's generalized aerobic training or climbing training. I, I like to do something every day, Tom. I, I kind of feel like, um, you know, our bodies after age 40 and certainly after age 50 are just kind of slowly shutting down. And so it's like, I don't like to take, it's rare that I take a complete rest day. And I'm not saying I train hard every day. I don't, but I do something active at the very least. I'll go for a walk, you know, a, a five mile walk, you know, and do business phone calls while I'm walking at the very least, uh, or, uh, you know, I'm doing some type of physical training or something that gets my heart rate up and gets my blood flowing every single day. And for that matter, because I have a this training history of decades um, and I'm at a very high level of fitness for my age, uh, it's a fact that most days I do two sessions a day, two workouts a day. Now, again, that's not two brutal climbing sessions or two treadwall sessions or two hangboard sessions. Absolutely not. Um, over the course of a week, I might do a dozen workouts, but only two of them are the max load fingerboard program. And maybe, uh, two of them are those 30, 30 intervals I described. And the others involve some weight training, some running, some, you know, uh, higher volume treadwall climbing, you know, the submaximal stuff we talked about. And so I, I do a lot of training, but I, I, uh, space out the, um, the more limit things by necessity, because otherwise you just, you know, um, I think I found, you know, after, yeah, two or three weeks of hard training, uh, I am actually starting to go backwards. Like my body just isn't, um, recovering and catching up. So you need the deload. Uh, and that, that gets frustrating when I'm on the road. Like I'm now on a two month road trip, uh, where I would love to climb hard, four or five days a week, but that's not sustainable at all. Uh, and for two months, you know, I, uh, I'm going to need to take not only, you know, some, you know, a lot of days off, but at some, you know, maybe halfway through the trip, I need to take a, almost a week off, you know, where I just, I, I, I brought my trad gear along so I can go do some routes on devil's tower for a few days where, you know, if I'm climbing trad five, nine, that's not really rigorous, uh, in the context of sport climbing, it is kind of more of a recovery activity, uh, you might say. And so, yeah, uh, I think you need to really keep your fingers on the pulse as an aging athlete. I mean, I think all climbers should think more about where they are in the recovery cycle uh, and question the, the the value of the, the workout they have planned. Is it appropriate for how they feel? Uh, but even more so for the aging athlete uh, to really um, try to, uh, you know, find ways 
to um, track fatigue. Um, and I mean, I really think subjective is almost the best. I mean, you know, in terms of if you're really experienced at training um, and have, as, as you and I do, decades of training under our belts, you know, I kind of, I, I, you know, by the time I, I, I do a very extensive warm up, whether I'm at the crag or at, at home in the gym, um, and by the end of that 30 minute warm up, I I pretty much know where I'm at, you mm, know, mm. 100 percent. In fact, I write in my training notebook, you know, like I, I, I use a percent like at, at the end of that warm up. OK, I'm only 80 percent today. And so I'm going to adjust what I do based on that. Um, and if I'm 100 percent, if I feel like it's a rare 100 percent day at the end of the warm up. And that might be one or two days a month, one or two sessions a month that I really feel that that might be a day that I, I try to do something more limit, or maybe I see if I can do that body weight, you know, uh, one hand hang. And uh, so uh, I, I think, uh, you know, for the aging athlete, it really uh, pays to have uh, data and records and uh, be really thoughtful and and quick to change your plans. Um uh, very often at the end of the warm up, I'll modify what I had planned for the day. You know, I'm training on the fly, so to speak. But again, I'm a coach. And so, like, you know, I'm maybe doing something that the average climber doesn't have the knowledge base or the wherewithal, wherewithal to do. Um, and that's where, if they have a good advisor, like somebody from Lattice to help guide them, uh, it can certainly be beneficial. Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting to hear, hear your perspective on that for sure. And, and when it comes to that recovery element, and I, I guess also the flip side of the coin, the performance, what do you what what do you sort of see as being the the key approaches that our athletes in their forties, fifties, sixties should be taking with their nutrition? Um, yeah, particularly with you know, I, I know that you have your own nutrition performance company and and you produce mm. supplements for this so i know you spent a lot of time researching right. this stuff but where should people yeah. be putting their their focus because there's a lot to go here but you know what are the headlines here yeah. where you can yeah. really yeah get this attention we could do a, a whole entire discussion on just this topic because it's it's powerful i believe uh and you know regardless of age whether you're a 20 something climber or a 50 something climber uh, nutrition is an important part of the formula you know fueling fueling your body for performance and training and also providing your body with the nutrients and the micronutrients needed for recovery and for strengthening of connective tissues and muscles and bones um and you know having healthy organs and you know help, you know good red blood cell mass i mean nutrition is so valuable for all of that. Uh, as younger athletes, we tend to not pay as much attention to diet because your body's a little more forgiving. Your meta metabolism is a little faster. Your hormone levels are, are more optimal when you're younger. And so you can get away with, you know, more carbs or more beer or whatnot or sleepless nights. Uh, and as you get older, you, if you want to perform at a high level at my age and perhaps at your age, it becomes more and more important that you're trying to do better with the sleep. You're trying to do better with your diet and nutrition. Uh, it's a lot easier to put on the pounds, you know, the body mass as you get older, as your metabolism slows down, uh, even for an active person. And, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much going on. And, you know, with regard to my nutrition company, Fizzy Vantage, that was born out of, you know, the company was literally born out of my research for myself, uh, beginning at about when I turned age 50. So, you know, nine years ago, just drilling down into what existing literature there was for uh, aging athletes. Uh, you know, there's a lot of papers on the topic of sarcopenia, for instance, which is the age-related loss of muscle mass. And of course, along with that goes strength and power. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, there's a lot of literature on that. There's a lot of literature on how your connective tissues age and uh, become more brittle and stiff as you get older. And so uh, as I was exploring that literature, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago, uh, it all led me to... Um, you know, this, you know, kept circling back to the role of nutrition. Uh, and I, I also, I'm lucky to have um, a pretty good health insurance uh, situation through my university job that I'm retired from, but I still have the insurance, thank goodness, uh, here in the States. Um, and I'm able to get an annual physical. So I've always had an annual physical with a, an internist who kind of a head to toe physical that includes blood work. And so I have this record of, you know, 20 years of blood work. Uh, and so in my 40s and into my 50s, I started to see things change there. I became more anemic. I had a, a low red blood cell mass. Um, obviously, you know, uh, hormones, you know, testosterone obviously tends to drift downward as you get older. There's a lot of, you know, things in your body that your brain is down regulating or for various reasons are changing in a suboptimal way. And training can, you know, be uh, one countermeasure, uh, and uh, nutrition can be another countermeasure. Um, and of course, if needed in severe situations, pharmacology can can be a countermeasure uh, for some of those things. And uh, you know, so I quickly, uh, and again, this is nine ten years ago. I quickly, you know, discovered that I was, uh, you know, protein deficient. Um, I was uh, vitamin D deficient. Uh, I was in fact dangerously low in vitamin D despite being someone who's out in the sun a lot. Uh, uh, I am magnesium deficient. I mean, I really uncovered a lot of these things through blood work uh, that uh, could uh, be hurting me in terms of not only performance and training adaptations, but even potentially lifespan. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you have a, a low vitamin D level, uh, it's now, pretty conclusive that you have a, a a tougher time with something like COVID. You know, uh, people um, with low vitamin D are more at risk of long COVID or perhaps even dying from COVID. Um, now, thankfully, that's mostly behind us. But kind of the lesson I learned uh, was, you know, I need to keep my vitamin D. That's, that's, some, that's a supplement I take every day. And my company doesn't, we don't manufacture a vitamin D supplement. So I'm not selling anything. I'm just selling good health and um, and even anti-cancer properties of consuming vitamin D. So regardless mm. of how much sun you get, you probably should consider a vitamin D supplement. Um, and I could we could go down a laundry list of things that I uncovered. I don't want to go there. Uh, that's another podcast perhaps. But, um, you know, there was a few big ones and the protein was a big one. Um, I was always a believer that, you know, uh, you know, the kind of minimal requirement for protein is a half a, a gram per pound of body weight. So I weigh 160, so 80 grams a day. If I got 80 grams, I was good. Well, the, the, the research 
but clearly shows, especially for aging athletes wanting to fight fight sarcopenia, but even for younger athletes wanting to optimize recovery, you probably need more than that. Uh, perhaps upwards of a gram per pound of body weight or two grams per uh, yeah. kilogram, however yeah, you want to yeah. you know, slice it or dice it. Uh, and so now I shoot for a bare minimum of 100 grams a day. Um, and if I'm really training and performing hard, I'm going for more like 120 grams a day. So you don't need the amount of protein that bodybuilders consume. They're on anabolics and, and can metabolize and utilize more protein. But for uh, for a natural athlete, um, you know, getting as a target 100 grams a day, I think is very important. And, you know, I eat a pretty lean diet. Uh, I'm, I, I have a slow metabolism. Uh, I typical day eat only 2000 to at a busy day, 3000 calories. So getting that hundred grams through food alone is kind of hard because I only eat a couple of pieces of meat a week. Um, I'm not vegetarian, but I'm not a big meat eater either. So for me, protein supplements are essential for me to get that number. Uh, and so, um, you know, that was kind of the birth of Fizzy Vantage is, you know, we manufacture a whey protein, a plant protein, um, and a collagen protein, which is, you know, the gold standard uh, uh, protein, I believe, uh, for pre-workout use for connective tissue strengthening. And, um, you know, there's there's evidence that these things work. And, you know, there's always naysayers out there that, you know, supplements and protein powders, you don't need them. And yeah, perhaps there's the rare person that can design their diet just right, that they don't need them. I'm not saying, you know, it's a, a central, but um, for somebody eating, you know, um, a pretty clean diet um, and maybe someone that shies away from animal products as, as a daily thing, um, I, I think supplemental protein is, is quite helpful. And so, you know, those are some of the things I uncovered. And um, I, you know, again, I'm blessed to have uh, um, insurance that enabled me to get that annual blood work and establish a 20 year track record so I could see these very slow trends in the long term. And one more mm -hmm. thing I should add, Tom, is in the last five years, I've actually increased my blood work to quarterly. I do it four times a year now. And the other three, I have to pay out of pocket. But here in the States, it's actually not that expensive to do. You can walk into a blood lab and for 300 bucks, I can get a full met metabolic panel, red blood cell panel, testosterone panel. Um, and, you know, so uh, I think, especially as you get into your fifties and beyond once a year might not be enough, you know, to really have a good understanding of what's going on. And uh, so I'm really big on data, obviously, I'm that kind of person. And so, you know, you, having that blood work every quarter, um, it's kind of the instrument panel for your body. You know, our cars have these instrument panels that tell us how the, you know, various parts of the machinery of the vehicle are operating, you know, tire pressure and oil pressure and temperature. Well, the blood work is kind of that... Um, I look at it as the instrument panel for our body. And there's a lot of value. Obviously, you can get a lot of warning signs of some bad things, you know, like if you have a kidney issue or, you know, things not related to climbing or training, but just something that might develop in your body. If you have the blood work, um, there's a, a better chance you're going to sniff that out early on and be able to, you know, hopefully nip it in the butt as well. So um, I think hopefully there's a lot of older athletes listening to this, that if they haven't had a physical or had blood work done in years, hopefully this is a wake up call. There's a, a health reason 
and a performance reason to be doing it. Yeah, it's really at, it's least, really, at least at least annually. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting you, you say that. Um, I know a number of people here at Lattice um, who are considerably younger than me. They have all gone and done it as well. And uh, yeah, you just send your bloods off and they, they send you a profile back. And I know uh, there were some interesting findings from that. Um, and that was across both male and female members of staff. So I think it's, yeah, it, if, you've, if you've got the budget for it um, and you can find a way to find a way that's sort of appropriate fre- frequency for you, then I think it's a very, yeah, a, a very valid approach to take, especially like in the UK here, it's, it's a lot cheaper to do for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's good to hear. And let me just give you one more anecdote um, that I think out of all of that, um, you know, out of my involvement um, and uh, discovery of the value of blood work, uh, just uncovering five or six years ago, my vitamin D deficiency in getting that up. And I'm now running at high normal level instead of I was running below normal level on the vitamin D. Just in making that correction over about a nine-month period, my testosterone level came up by 100 points. That's massive. Um, and just from, because vitamin D uh, is essential. It's a, it's a steroid hormone itself, and it's essential for making testosterone. So if you're vitamin D deficient, I will almost bet that your, um, you know, your androgens are running at a lower or, you know, are at a lower level. So it fixed that. And, uh, and also it got my red blood cell mass up a point or two. I don't know that I can feel a difference on that, but as a uh, endurance athlete or route climber, red blood cells are really important. Uh, you know, just like a runner, there's a reason people blood dope and do EPO, you know, runners and cyclists and such, because red blood cell mass, um, you know, more is better to a point, um, you know, you don't want to have too much or you could kill yourself. But in any case, that even went up a, a, a bit um, a, as a result of just daily vitamin D supplementation. So I'm talking about, I think I spend 10 bucks a month on vitamin D and I've gotten a couple massive um, changes in blood work as a result of that, uh, that I think as an older athlete are critical. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that from you, Eric. And, um, uh, Thank you so much for sharing your perspective today um, across a whole number of different items here. I, I think like always, I mean, we haven't had a podcast for, it feels like maybe a year and a half or something. And I always finish these things and go, I wish I had about four hours to chat through some <laughs> of this stuff. And I kind of wish that I lived a bit closer to you, but um, I'm sure that everyone listening will have enjoyed it. And um, we really must not leave it so long before <laughs> doing another one, uh, really. Because yeah. oh, we've got yeah. so much to talk I- about always. I, I love these conversations, Tom. You're one of those. I can name, you know, five or ten people on planet Earth here that uh, are kind of cut from the mold that you and I are cut at. That you know, I love conversations like this because I learn as much as hopefully I share uh, from from talking to people. And um, and I guess if you'll allow me just one summary statement, you know, mm. I think while we have spent so much time talking about climbing performance and grades and you know how to get the next level of this and that. Um, I think the most important message I want to give to aging climbers is just climb. You know, um, I I'm I, I often talk about, you know, I'm so proud to be uh, and so lucky to be a climber for life that I've been doing it all these years. And I will uh, keep doing it even when the grades aren't going up. Uh, you know, I hope to be that 80 year old guy still out there doing 510A. 
you know, 5C or whatever, um, uh, because climbing is, uh, you know, so um, important to just, you know, making life the the best, you know. And so while we love to talk about performance and grades and all this, it's like, first and foremost, go climb and have fun. Um, and, you know, every day uh, that you can wake up and go climbing, you know, kind of count your blessings because, you know, at some point, um, and I reflect on this, unfortunately, a lot is like at some point, I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, or I'm not going to be able to do 513 anymore. And, uh, you know, so you kind of have to um, appreciate every day. And, uh, and I, I think that's, I, I sense that's what companies like Lattice do. I mean, you do such a great job at motivating people and inspiring them. And sure, we're trying to share information on how to climb harder. I mean, that's what my life has been as far as an author and um, an entrepreneur, you know, fizzy vantage nutrition. It's about help helping people become the best they can be, but more important, just hopefully inspiring people that, um, you know, climbing is such a great life activity and let's just, uh, you know, let's keep on keeping on with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more like, like climbing and climbing is my entire life. And it's one of the things that has always been a very, very important, you know, philosophy ethic of bound what my spoke both myself and Ollie is starting up lattices that is it should be a training approach that is long term. That's why you see us work with athletes for such a long time as well. We're not this whole burn bright, bust out some amazing results one year, then you're burnt out. It's about a longevity element of it. And again, why we really, really enjoy working with people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, because we get so much joy from climbing. I love seeing people take the right and the appropriate choice with the training to complement the climbing yeah. bit of it, because that's what we all want to do for our entire life. And yeah. it's it's sometimes understanding that training isn't just this thing which is attached to 20-year-olds wanting to win the Olympics or to climb the next hardest grade right at the limit of the spectrum. It's a very very useful tool to staying productive performing healthy all the way across the spectrum it's just that it's got a moderated for the individual at that right part of their cycle yeah yeah and and i think just the mindset you know like climbers you know tend to be people that wake up in the morning and have shit to do you know we're like <laughs> passionate about about life you know whatever it may be and uh you know it's it's sad when i i see people even my age who have basically taken a metaphorical knee, uh, you know, in terms of I'm done, you know, they've checked out in terms of a lot of things in their life. Um, and uh, climbers aren't that way, man. Climbers are so motivated and goal driven. I love it. And, you know, grade doesn't freaking matter. You know, if you're a, a motivated 5'8 climber or a motivated 5'15 climber, they're kind of the same person, uh, you know, regardless of the grade. And uh, mm. I, I think that's why, you know, you and I are lucky just to be in that community for so long. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, where can uh, people find you uh, online? What, what's the best sort of place to locate? Yeah. Because I know you have a whole number of different platforms, really. I don't know yeah, where best yeah. to point people off these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, my training business that I've had for decades, uh, trainingforclimbing.com, to spell out trainingforclimbing.com, you know, that's my legacy site. It's been around for over 20 years. Uh, and I still maintain that and publish new articles occasionally, uh, uh, you know, and it's all free content um, and as evidence-based as it can be. 
Uh, and uh, my business is Fizzy Vantage, spelled with a P-H. So it's like physical advantage. So fizzyvantage.com. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we're a sports nutrition company designed by climbers for climbers. Uh, again, it's pretty much all evidence-based stuff. It works. Uh, it's premium grade. And, uh, you know, many of the world's top climbers uh, use Fizzy Vantage Nutrition. Now, I'm so proud of the team we've built. I think mm -hmm. I have the 50 strongest climbers i like to brag maybe not quite but pretty much all of them are there <laughs> yeah you've um, definitely got a good team on the on the fizzy vantage team and uh, uh uh and so i'm really proud of that and we're slowly introducing products in europe it's like the nutrition regulations are so different in the eu countries and even in the uk from the eu countries that uh we've struggled uh, tremendously trying to uh, get our distribute our products outside of North America. It's really, really hard. I just shipping a bag of collagen from the UK to Germany. It can be stuck in customs and even rejected because they're just every ingredient they inspect. And they, of course, imagine the worst, like what could be in this bag. And uh, so, um, you know, we have to uh, slowly, you know, you know, discover the, um, the necessary nuance to uh, get through customs and uh, you know follow the regulations on labeling and ingredients. Uh, and uh, to listeners in the UK, you can get a few of our products from the Epic TV shop and Banana Fingers. Uh, and in the coming years, we'll have more of our product line there. We're, we're working hard to do that, but it's a very, very tough and expensive thing to do. Um, and then the final thing is on, on Instagram. I have my personal Instagram, uh, Eric underscore Hurst. Uh, and uh, my training for climbing Instagram is training the number four climbing. Uh, and then, of course, Fizzy Vantage uh, Nutrition is also on Instagram. So uh, I welcome questions, comments. Uh, I try to respond to everybody who emails or messages me. And uh, I'm a busy person with like five balls in the air on any given day juggling, probably like you, Tom. And so uh, it's it can take time, but I, I do try to respond to everybody who reaches out. So. Uh, mega well thanks so much eric for everything you do and for also for recording this podcast with me yeah. as well i'm sure yeah i'm so happy to do it let's do it again sometime yeah yeah we will <laughs> do but bye for now okay take care tom